You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, scientists, doctors, and inventors in the cannabis industry. I'm Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Many of you probably have heard of our next guest, A.C. Moon. She has been toiling away in the California cannabis industry for about 25 years, where she earned a degree in horticulture, endured raids, and dealt with a federal indictment. She has also opened dispensaries and developed one of the first line of edibles back in the day. A.C. is also a multi-patented inventor, an Emerald Cup judge. Her international work is expansive, but in the past few years, she has worked in the Caribbean to help farmers protect their genetics and family recipes through intellectual property. Let's welcome A.C. Moon. Um, If you could just give us a quick, you know, background summary of 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 your background i know it's extensive i know there's so many things <laughs> but uh just maybe current or or however you want to do it i, I would love to hear uh just um, a little summary for people who will be listening before we jump into questions okay thank you i'm ac moon cameron i've been working in the cannabis industry for about 25 years i came in as a horticulturist and went to college for horticulture while mm-hmm. taking care of my mom with cancer and you know, raising a kid during um, raids and dealt with federal indictment and these types of things that really cause a lot of harm to our culture. Open dispensaries, started as Harvest Moon Munchie Company, the one of the first non-chlorophyll concentrate made, made organic edibles companies in the Bay Area in 2001. And then again, dealing with more um, persecution through all of walks of life as we tried to tout medical marijuana in the Bay Area, really working in the advocacy sector for um, cancer, multiple sclerosis patients and things like that. Dealt with uh, more prohibition, went into inventing, decided that I saw the future being a very corrupt one and that I needed to diversify my portfolio. So I started inventing and invented my first product in 2012. Crop Tops Greenhouses, which is an instant pop-up portable greenhouse that protects plants from storms or people use it for, um, you know, pested, pesticide or different controls in their gardens. And so started learning intellectual property and um, really getting into patents and genetics, keeping my one Afghani goo mother alive for uh, about 19 years, one, one plant. I kept it in homeostasis through that entire time and um, did a lot of research. And so got really intrigued by educating worldwide and started a consulting company in about 2015. Started working internationally in um, Thailand, Morocco, Bermuda. Uh, Most recently, 2019 or 2018, um, started working in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, helping with their new medical marijuana and medical mushroom laws, Mm. as well as helping traditional farmers save equity through um, learning how to gain intellectual property in European areas and those types of things. Teaching cultivation, horticulture, and business building to the natives in the St. Vincent and Grenadine Islands, which there's 32 islands there. Mm. And then uh, now for the last year and a half or so, uh, well, excuse me, for the last couple of years, I've been working with Oaksterdam University, helping to educate uh, different consumers and being an equity mentor, um, 
as they excelled. And now I work with the University of Virgin Islands Cell, as well as Oxfam University to build the first endemic commercial cannabis commerce course for the people to have equity and the ability to work in their space in their small island chamber, which um, the U.S. Virgin Islands is down in the Caribbean, though it is American-owned territory. So it's a very unique space. And so I love working in equatorial areas and um, Northern Hemisphere as well, but I'm actually from Northern California. I work in Humboldt and, excuse me, Mendocino in Nevada County. And mm -hmm. so Grass Valley is where I originally hailed my companies from and uh, just got back from Humboldt yesterday, actually. <laughs> you, you is, is it really called Grass Valley? Is it really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And we have a huge epicenter of cannabis growing in the Sierra Nevadas because the, the climate is absolutely perfect in this uh, hemisphere and we don't have to deal with as much ocean mist as we do in Humboldt. So we have oh, okay. a little bit easier climate to cultivate in and have a little bit higher quality sometimes. Depends on the genetics, of course. So, so are you cultivating then still? Or? I, I always am cultivating. I okay. have 40 acres um, of myself. I have a farm in Northern California that I am currently working on licensing on, but right now we're actually looking at creating more of an actual on-hand learning site for mm -hmm. more people to do exchange student internships and apprenticeships in the cannabis uh, manufacturing or edible space so they can have more of the, the culture with the, the elders that really hold a lot of the information that you're not gonna find online or you know in different ways, just finding diverse ways to use the property in educating since right now, honestly, the, the cultivation taxes in our state don't make um, an easy space for the the, the craft farmers to to get ahead so i know multi-state operators and uh, a little bit difficult to stay in that space so yeah. being able to educate and build these programs has been a great way to you know balance out those times but i just pulled some um i actually was just packing a bowl you have to excuse me because i broke my foot and i have surgery in the morning so that's no. why i'm not even at my desk oh. i my is up right now on ice pack so oh no oh my uh, god I was, working at the, I was working at the emerald cup a couple of weeks ago and we were getting the, the the venue ready for the event for the party for the legacies and i rolled my ankle and broke my foot so i gotta oh. have surgery tomorrow That's i was putting up some of my ganja here is some of the the cannabis that I grew this year when I got back from the Caribbean, I put it through bud. It was already in vegetation, though. Oh, my gosh. Some rainbow sherbet that I cultivated and just um, harvested here about a month ago. Oh and so this is back to the giant cycles. And a nice little purple twinge, nice little gassy aftertaste with a nice earthy you know, a ex expanding lung feel. It's a definitely an indica dominant, but was a sativa in the long windedness, which is always a pain in the butt, which makes crop tops my invention. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah. So I, I, I kind of, like I had mentioned um, in our, you know, interactions is I would love to get, you know, I, I feel like, you know, being in New York and it's coming online now. And, you know, usually what happens is all the the innovation and you know you guys are so way ahead of us on the west coast and um it, it's so great it, it to see 
like, okay, what's coming up next? You know, what's coming this way? So I, I that's why I kind of thought, I really want to hear what's going on in California, you know, from someone who's there and been there for a long time. So I kind of thought we could just lead that conversation. Um, okay, that's great. Yeah, I actually worked in the illicit market in New York for many, many years. You know, <laughs> over a decade, I was, uh, you know, of course, we have a hard time saying these types of things online or anything, but definitely the medical or illicit days were ran by a lot of what was coming out of NorCal and there was a lot of different things that put us all at risk but we did it anyways for the love of the people we wanted to make sure organic product made it to, to different places so seeing the evolution in New York and on the east coast all the way up to Maine is pretty yes. amazing I always felt like there was a real bridge that needed to be and that's part of where consulting and education comes in is by sharing the information because the East Coast may have their focus and excuse me, the East Coast in general, all the way up to Canada's focus has been a lot about commerce and leading the way in political commerce, which has a really like affluent effect on those of us that are actually working hands-on with the plant or with the commerce in general. And so the people that are out in the woods though, that have had the 30, 50 years of training in the cannabis industry and all the walks of creating these products and innovations are getting a lot wiped out because there's no, there's no bridge way. There's no gap, you know, there's no way to bridge that information of where, how do you obtain funds? How do you work in real business structure that can compete though we're not competitive with the East Coast amount of volume, the amount of conversaviness, the, the tightness of the way things operate is a little bit hippier. No offense to my people out there that are listening. In, in the West Coast, we're kind of ivory, where we're, we're very like go with the flow. And if we can find ways to fudge things, we will. But on the East Coast, it's a little bit more tight. You know, they work on Wall Street. They want to, you know, they know the numbers game better than the West Coast. And I see obviously bigger business coming from these entities, but it's really important as I've seen in working with equity with Oaksterdam and different entities is to keep those legacy people in place. Those people oh. that did persecuted for um, being in the hustle, being in the game for all of us. We got persecuted. I personally have federally indicted my people in New York's the same. Um, and these are things that continue to go on. So just making sure that those people with the money and the deep pockets that are influencing the greater scheme of lobbying all the way down to social affluence and product innovation, really, we keep it tight. And yeah. uh, we, the society in in way influencing what's happening next so that much like the alcohol and tobacco industry, we don't get completely overthrown. We want to have those that 40 years, 50 years of influence and social law still take place. We still got that little black book of ethics in in the the cannabis world, and we we want to keep it there. That's for sure. <laughs> How do you think that that they should it should be bridged? Where do you think the problems are, or do are you where you? Yeah. For myself, I feel like again, not to sound cliche, but again, it's education, and so I've gone through seven eight years of continued education to get to where I am as an educator. I'm now about to test for 14001 ISO. So um, these are mainstream certifications, mainstream educational bodies that allows the smaller operators to keep up and understand like risk management, assurance, these things that are not 
necessarily in the scope of a cannabis um, entity's world. We're, we're, we're worried about the, the concepts of, you know, just social equity and who's going to buy our product and what is our package and our labeling looking like and are we infringing on intellectual property and these types of things, but really in the greater scheme of who's going to be the long-winded business operators or the ones that are, are worrying about assurance and what your CGMP marks are and all of your risk management and how that litigates working with investors or larger entities that are going to have affluence on your business after the fall of your locals because cannabis comes in in a green rush into anywhere I've worked in. I've worked in 17 different states and, and like 11 different countries or something. And you watch it come in in the green rush and it rushes in with this huge velocity like a tidal wave and it pushes up like really, really fast till it crests at this. There's so many people invested in it, so much time, so much money, so much plastic fabrication of packaging that never even gets put out, products that get recalled because they're not done properly, yeah. laboratory testing processes, the whole thing gets kind of put up to this grander space of like, let's dump a ton of money out of it. And then they realize that there's too many for the amount of actual consumers that are there. And then the, the green flow starts like petering out and slowly the operators start caving in because there's not enough line and they don't realize that farming is farming. You know, the, the person that gets paid for the green bell pepper at the store gets paid crap. It's like 30 cents, but the store is selling it for three bucks a piece. So the same thing reflects in cannabis. The farmers aren't profiting from that $75 eighth that you just yeah. bought in the package. It's not translating to the farmers. So after that green peak of commerce and the green rush comes on, then you start seeing the dwindle and the economic crisis starts coming on. And this happens time and time again. So licensing and being able to partner with those of influence or knowledge on these waves are often legacy or equity because they've seen not only on the streets that we see the flow or the brand flow or the marketing flow or the product hype, but also those of us that write for magazines, I write for multiple magazines, we also can influence that hype by you, you want to make sure you're going to award ceremonies that are valid, like the Emerald Cup. You don't want to sell out to like high times or something like that because it is a corrupt entity. Like mm -hmm. that isn't, that's just, you know, you have to do diligence on who you work with, how you work with them, and then let that voice like be continued forward that's the only way that we can make that melting pot go on because it's really going to be a hard gap to bridge without being able to say okay because at the same time we have to have cultural reparations in in every sense so mm -hmm. when larger companies come in one of our jobs is to teach them what the society is what is their culture what is the, on the beat on mm -hmm. the street what is in the hoods what is in the woods boom, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. culture um, has to combine with commerce and, and in order for anybody to be not exploited, but actually become exemplary in, in this industry. So that's where we really get the big guys. We get them into the small little events. We get them into that farm and go, this is our, this is what we struggle with. We don't have $20 million. We mm -hmm. have less than 200,000 to work with and we're mm. competing against 200 million square feet of greenhouse pumping out mid-levels so yeah it's hard 
so education I feel is always that essential point always be like leveling up and then meshing with everybody else that is leveling up on their same front you know so do you, do you mean like also to me what I see like uh leveling up on education is um is is business education like of course if you, if you if you were an entrepreneur is is you know back in the day I mean if you're doing whatever you're doing distributing or growing you know right. you're entrepreneurial but now you have to get into the real world like you're saying and compete with these people who are up here right this is my whole thing is I feel like oh my gosh, all, you know, all these social equity programs, especially in New York, they're doing the big push for the social equity programs and bringing in people, you know, who've never had a business, who are, but you know. Where predatory investing comes in. And there's yeah. down in the Caribbean where I see a lot of the, I'm not talking down to any sort of legislative programs because we've definitely involved ourselves with them with Amsterdam as well, but they set, set those up. You cannot hand somebody something and be like, here operate they're like i don't i've no, i've actually trained myself to avoid taxes i find my way to fudge everything like my job in life right now has been to create a fraudulent front and now all of a sudden i need to come out when it's not even federally legal and so at some point there's still a point where you're at a risk and you're not able to deal with banks and payment processing starts becoming elusive and there's still a, a huge amount so a lot of people come in with these false dreams of like, oh, I'm going to run this giant operation. And again, I tell them, are you a farmer by nature? Because if you're not and you don't have a passion for it, I'm sorry, but you're probably not going to survive at past 18 months of hype. Um, if you want an edibles company, you better know that you're going to be in a kitchen. You're going to be in a laboratory doing infusions. Like it's no different than any other job just because this plant has a huge amount of social hype behind it. Right. We're working these jobs. We're still taking huge risk. We're taking huge business loans out that all in all could be faulty. And so having that education and the actual equity mentors that we've built through Oaksterdam was we have, we're getting assigned to people that have those equity licenses given to them. Mm -hmm. And then I myself as somebody that's worked in cannabis for 25 years will literally hold their hand through the entire process answering any question that they that they have you know and and helping them do their risk management and their litigation of contracts and anything that may come up that puts them in as a risk to fail as an entrepreneur that's really important though connecting with mentors that have a greater knowledge than yourself right i mean before it even gets off in the state especially in new york where you're trying to launch this huge social equity program which is first and front center of the whole you know launch they don't even have any of the they have really so little in place for this and all you see is disaster train wreck coming like for these people with these huge you know million dollar loan you know multi-million dollar loans and I, I'm just like oh my god and it's just, it's it's, it's, it's the rush. they did the same with the housing industry is they push all of this on because these loans are backed by wherever it comes from the federal umbrella of loans kept that's going on with insurance, assurance, and the way the influx goes on with NASDAQ. So in a large entity, we vote in these things going, okay, legalize it, but they're not understanding what that means. It's able to be exploited in commerce just like anything else. And I tell them as a reflection all the time, look at ibuprofen, look at aspirin. That is a birch tree. 
How many people know that the aspirin that you're paying $7.38 for at Walmart is the birch tree that's in your front yard? The, mm -hmm. They are relying on the, the you know, de detachment of information from real application. So eventually what I fear is, you know, cartridges become, this is cannabis. And I'm like, no, like this plant is cannabis. Like mm -hmm. this is, you know, this is part of the ecosystem of the world. The reason we fight for it is because it can sequester carbon and, and heal the soil and all these different things, not just turn it into indoor growing that exploits the electricity's company to overthrow this people. Like that's where right, I worry. Right, right, exactly. It, that's overthrow. Yeah, it's it's like, it's going to be the, the cannabis bubble. Oh man, yeah. that's just so depressing. Okay, <laughs> well. well. I try to keep people upbeat by saying that there is worries around it by continuing to educate, learning licensing. When we learn licensing, one of the things that as me as a patented inventor, I've, I've gone through working with InventRight, which is different licensing companies that have like Stephen Keys and like real inventors that are able to teach the concept of I can sell my ideas, I can sell my processes. If I have a regenerative farming SOP that is properly certified standard operating procedure, I'm able to take this cultivar or whatever it is, protect it with intellectual property rights and actually offer it to these larger entities and gain my funds through that way. Like there's just different ways of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And we can't all be pot growers. We can't all be hustlers. We can't all be dispensary owners. Everybody's mm -hmm. got to choose their place wisely and continue to like excel and evolve it in however they can. But I guess looking at the California market and and it just wanted to, you know, kind of look at all the products that are out there and, you know, what's trending. I don't know how much you're looking at what's happening in the New York market. I see, you know, people are starting to, there's a few like, you know, hash rosin products coming out. And, you know, I know that that's been, you know, solventless has been big the past few years or, you know, that I've been listening. Um, and I feel like that's, that's emerging here though we are a new market it's new consumers you know yeah, we, we still have to we have to start slow because they're not even going to know what that means you know many right. many of them so they're starting with a lot of them starting with distillate gummies and things like that but i see the i see the yeah <laughs> the hash rods and 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 solventless um products coming out and and i actually am now i'm seeing um hash holes pop up a lot uh yeah. So I, I think that was trending last year, maybe in California. I might be behind on the times. It's when I'm hearing it. But um, so I guess I just wanted to see as far as products and 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 types of extraction processes like that, that you see that you really like, especially as a cult, you know, a master cultivator. And well, at the Emerald Cup and different competitions that we work within, um, even all the worldwide, really, I teach and and put on temples you know on pedestals the the actual organic uh, rosins and rosin extraction of course is due to heating live matter um possibly cured in some instances and it actually melts the trichromes off of the plant leaving a gooey uh, rosin matter in some of the states that I've worked in, even down to the Virgin Islands lately, I've been seeing a lot of falsified packaging where you'll see resin and it said THC, high quality THC resin instead of rosin. 
And it is a typo term, but it's actually, again, distillate. And the resin that's left over from distillate has a little bit higher concentration of the THC delta-9 that is found in the basis of tested distillate, which is normally extracted from hemp and things like that, and is quite dirty. Um, I try to, you know, explain to people the different points. And California is going a lot back to the traditional products, which is Rick Simpson oil, full spectrum extractions, um, where we are kind of, you know, a little bit playing with the alcohol, um, but not to the point where it's volatile. This is distilled with a high quality indicas in the hills of the Sierra Nevadas. And um, this, I refuse to sell though, we only give this um, to cancer patients that actually need it. We won't um, give it away in commerce because again, it was blessed by the, the shamans up on, on the mountain. So really, yeah. oh my God, just goosebumps. <laughs> wow. You're in touch with the energy that we, we hope to bring <sighs> to the world. Definitely the, the high, the high quality rosins which are made from regenerative um, farming practices are probably the highlight and that's really what we're seeing is the highlight of even though emerald cup is done blind which we have all the samples given in just numbered jars uh, judges we do never ever see brands we have no idea you know the edibles are where it gets a little sticky we actually are judging the edibles on the packaging as well how that packaging is presented to commerce if it has the proper labeling, the ingredients, and going on to what would be CGMP level, just overview on how it is you're displaying this commerce. Because again, we cannot open a package of edibles and give it to the judges. We can't have that. So we get the full package for the edibles markets and we consider the highest level products made out of the, the rosin extracts or cold water hash, which even though it's water is considered a solvent, it is an organic solvent and completely evaporates if cured correctly. And an organic cold water hash is something I've worked with since the turn of the century. And mm -hmm. something I was taught, you know, using fabrics. Now we have bubble bags and things like that for extraction methods. Oh God, that's so exciting. It's very high potency and it gives you a lot of amicability with different infusions because different oils or different recipes will call for different forms of extraction methods. You know, uh, one recipe may work with rosin while you need, you know, obviously isolates for like beverages, which is a huge hype. Um, I think this year we had like 45, um, 45 beverage entries into the edibles category, which was the most that I had ever seen. And that's from like Wonder. We had the like some of the, the mainstream brands like Pabst Blue Ribbon created a cannabis um, beer, which oh. is all of, and we had like several different innovations from not only the the lower craft farmers, um, all all the way up to you know large entities, which are like wow, this is like Pabst Blue Ribbon like kind of entities in Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. They pr produced like a, a hemp lager at all, as well that had. I think it was 5% cannabinoids in it. So those were beautiful innovations. We're seeing it go all over the place though, because in 2019, we had like Zumu. Um, this one company created um, like uh, shrimp chips that mm -hmm. were in 
used and that was the sumo company and for me you can eat a whole bag and i wouldn't even feel anything but a, a new consumer might feel a slight effect mm -hmm. but some of those infusions if you pop it air pop it expose it to too much heat it actually defiles some of the the thc and cannabinoid content so but they're fun innovations they sell yeah. well uh, right now in California, we're seeing legislation turn back like they did to us in 2007 for the medical marijuana, which was uh, we got all rated over uh, packaging that was appealing to children. Mm -hmm. It was during the, the early stages of medical marijuana laws really refining into what now became the Legalization Act, um, seeing how society is affected by packaging and all these types of things. Mm -hmm. So right now, legislative body is really starting to put the hammer down on you know, diminishing the colorful packages on Mylar, starting to put it back into a control measure of like no cartoon characters, no like nothing that appeals to children, no yeah. high end like rainbow color like Skittles crap. It's a no. Well, that's all it's California. They're on yeah. our shelves here. They're on our shelves. It's like crazy. It's and it's not allowed that here. It's definitely part of that hype, you know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's, but. It looks terrible. <laughs> it looks terrible. It looks terrible. And and yes, but you see them, you know, on all the illegal, you know, just um, smoke shops here. But um, but I just want to ask you. So, is the Emerald Cup? Is that um, is that coming up soon? Uh, the uh, new that will be this year in the beginning of April. Um, okay. I could let you know the exact. I think it's the seventh and the eighth of April, and it, this year will be the first year that we have it in Oakland at the the giant. Uh, it was the the giant not the Wrigley Field but oh my goodness the Coliseum and we have a lake body it's right easy access and many great bands are coming this year so I'm excited oh to see cool I mean yeah it's so far away for me that I never really kind of concentrate on it but I'm obviously I know it's a very regarded uh you know um competition I guess but so oh so so you're you're like you're going through the products now and kind of reviewing the products as a judge for the April show is that right um we're actually only going to be taking admissions I think admissions start in like a month okay and then, and then we have two months to judge the products once they're out okay so the beverage uh the beverages the 30 40 that you were talking about is from the last uh emerald cup yeah that was last year that was uh the 2022 okay and and was um wait yeah 2022 because oh last year yeah um wait did you skip 2023 i think you did right emerald cup did they skip 2023 um we actually uh just moved it to april so instead of having it december 7th which is where i just broke my foot um we had a legacy party which was just a vip invite only for all of us that have been working in the industry for over you know 15, 20 years. And so had a great thing. It was the announcement of the largest Emerald Cup that's coming up here in Oakland. So it should be fantastic. Definitely find your way. Come on down. And maybe that'll be my trip. <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. And also it must have been a great party with all your friends. <laughs> your oh, uh, yes. your if I wasn't ended up on crutches. But oh yeah, always, except for that. Yeah, we have an Emerald Cup family, which is extends all over the place now of people that are just continuing to be in it for the passion of the industry because again once the crest of the green rush comes down it really just leaves the people that truly just love what it is um and it yeah. pushes aside everyone else 
<laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so when you were mentioning the beverages and the Paps Blue Ribbon and or uh, what were you saying? Who was jumping in? The the beer people. Uh, was it Paps? Yeah. 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 So is, is this so? Is this their method to start testing? And you know, obviously before they need federal, you know, legalization. Is that is that their way to start product testing R and D kind of and get their? I definitely think um, many of the large businesses have now stepped their toes in to start doing some R and D in general, social R and D going okay, what product might actually hit? What would, you know, what's worth protecting? What's worth like, you know, spending our time lobbying for, because that's going to be a huge point is um, extracting or pushing their lobbying funds towards different aspects. These larger businesses have the ability to change state laws and to affect them a lot. I, I currently am visiting um, Reno, Nevada, um, I'm about an hour and a half from my property down in Grass Valley, and this state is completely crazy because they say weed's legal and cannabis is legal to grow your own, but it's a federal offense if you try to grow a plant within 25 miles of a cannabis dispensary. Oh. So, I mean, you have to be like one really remote person in Nevada to be living 25 miles or plus past a city. Right. And it's going to be really hard to find that. And so, I mean, there's a lot of desert, but still that's the way it's because those people that own the largest licenses lobbied for that law to pass because it by law forces everybody within 25 miles to have to go to the dispensary and right. not have the right to grow their own and continue to criminalize growing their own funneling funds back through that, which they pay the taxation, which goes back into corporate litigation and, and uh, the cycle continues. You know, that's why we have to stay affluent and keeping legacy influence in place. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. So maybe, maybe, you know, I, I kind of like, I think the, these major beer companies kind of coming in and trying to you know, they're smart to do that. I mean, to go right to all the legacy people, the growers who've been around for a long time and, you know, get their opinions and maybe forge some partnerships in some way. I mean, you know, I, I hope they do that. I hope that they, you know, that, like you said, they bring, you know, these experts in and, and we oh, all, absolutely. yeah. And, and I, again, they're smart to do, as I was reflecting on earlier, licensing, which is taking some of these elders ideas and really creating them, selling the ideas of what has built the industry on the streets, these tinksters, these infusions, these salves, all of these things. We could never sell something like RSO because this is sacred medicine, um, but people are. People are yeah. boiling huge amounts of vodka and different lower grade and calling it RSO or full spectrum extract, putting it into capsules, and selling it as a gel capsule of RSO. So different things will be exploited on different levels. We just got to keep it as honest as possible. And otherwise, we need to train all of the people that have taken the lobbyist money to see the plight of not only the people, but the environment and making sure that all the waste from the people that are distilling that it's going someplace properly. It's not getting dumped back into a poor ecosystem. I don't want to see cannabis being a pollutant and yeah. 
not just the people, you know, the environment and the minds of kids too. Like we can't green rush, greenwash society. We need to educate it as an alternative to drugs and alcohol. Like yes. Plant medicine. And so, uh, so how would you, so you've mentioned um, licensing from these, you know, elders, uh, what, like what kind of, how, you know, like, I mean, RSO is not like, what would they license say? Well, um, like what kind of opportunities? Anything, anything. You... Okay, so I have, I'm just going to throw out some examples because I consult with all sorts of different people. Okay. So an elder has an idea that they want to patent. If I gain intellectual property portfolio by coming to me and I teach the person how I gain a portfolio for them, that gives their their commerce ability a solid structure and foundation and also a valid business number of how I can marketplace valuate their idea and so by doing this and going through this cycle of innovation personal innovation the recipe for that tincture the recipe for that style becomes intellectual property that is an idea that they own and then all of a sudden around that if they do it properly you can't copy them you can't copy them oh yeah I, yes and then they take this idea and i can show people how to do this I'm very well versed in it. And we actually teach how to pitch to these larger corporations that are, we have the money, we have the know-how, but we don't have the, the perfect recipe that has been going for 25 years. We don't have that. We don't have that intellectual property that can become a brand name. So let's say I have, I have a, as, um, like a liniment for breast massage. And I was like, I want this to be Mary Jane Society podcast, liniment breast massage, just specifically for women's health. And it's going to be branded Mary Jane Society's liniment for breast health. Mm -hmm. I would take my idea and my recipe and I go to Mary Jane Society and I say, would you like to buy my idea? Would you like to partner up with my mm -hmm. idea? And I'm going to help you innovate further. And we're going to partner through this. And by doing that, licensing and partnership, we're able to combine the legacy information, the elders, the people that spend all their time in the labs, <laughs> in the gardens. And we're going to not waste all that energy and information. We're going to give it to the larger people that have more exposure, that have more contentability, more distribution. I myself am selling my patent because at this point in the manufacturing game, it is smarter for me to take royalties to a larger distributing company than it is for me to continue trying to uh, venture capital it myself, just mm -hmm. strictly from shipping trades, yeah. all of the, the shipping lines that go from any sort of internal or international you know, sourcing spaces becomes a giant conglomerate painted butt for an entrepreneur. And so we want to make that your thoughts and what you do into a package and then partner with those that have that amicability. And especially since um, all these multi-state operators are, have their own products, they're vertically, vertically integrated, they have their products. And, and you do read about people, they are partnering with, you know, certain people to, um, you know, yeah, they, it is happening. You do see it happening. Um, but but it needs to happen more, and they would be smart to take their R and D to these people. So now, 
like what kind of can you can you get patents on things like that because i i mean patents are hard to get so actually the first question is what patents do you have um i own um right now i'm working on my third full federal patent excuse me i should have put my hair up um mm. I, my crop tops greenhouse is patented as the parabolic shape i am patent number 10,821,332 in the federal patent uh, secretary only seven percent of patents are granted to women only eight percent of patents are even filed by women um they are not something that is normally in the historical books of intellectual property worldwide women are not normally set into this place of proprietorship um underneath crop tops greenhouses i have 21 micro patents and this is a phrase that i'm using to say that a patent is a basis of discoveries. So I may have a parabolic shape, which extends through a shaft that has a telescoping pole, which has buttons that affiliate the dexterity or strength of that object. Every aspect of my crop tops greenhouses is individually patented and protected. Meaning that I went to the patent examiner, I explained why that was unique, and specifically for my invention and specifically for the cultivation of horticulture and was granted proprietary rights to each of those aspects, making it 22 patents in all. And right now I am working on two others that I cannot discuss um, online, but there'll be more for me here real quick. And we're working with some great companies that I think will uh, definitely be an international thing. Oh my gosh. So, um, because I, I mean, I, I, I think I've heard, or I know that you cannot get a patent on any sort of cultivars or anything like, you know, plant. It's not true. No, I worked in uh, genetic patenting for several years now. Like I said, I have been running the original app GUI for 22 years. I held the same mother for 19 years in homeostasis, which is the point of where it does not grow nor shrink, but similar to the practices of what you would grow or cultivate a bonsai with. And so using those horticultural methods and processes, um, I was able to do a lot of research on this particular cultivar and allow it to environmentally and climate, climatically mutate to my specific ende endemic environment. Um, I can take seed stock and we have gone through, I work with the first patented cultivar, which is given to Steve Covey of Cry Covey Cryogenics in 1992. He patented the first cannabis cultivar, which is dominant of uh, the train wreck and different oh. haze cultivars. Um, Doc Ray of Doc Ray Genetics holds patents on three of his cultivars. We can also teach plant breeding rights, which is the ability it's different than a patent in the way that it still protects it as an endemic cultivar, but you cannot um, displace it by backbreeding and you're allowed to work internationally. So it basically protects your cultivar as it um, gets passed away in seed or scion form throughout the globe. So there is different ways to protect your cultivars or your genetics, a very important part of educating definitely is learning how to do your trials uh, for plant breeding rights, you need to do trials of upwards of three years, and I can uh, show you how to document each of your discoveries so that your research compiled becomes the intellectual property that will cover your genetic um, portfolio. Wow, sure. I bet there's a lot of, you know, I bet there's a lot of breeders out there that would like to do that, right? Because, I mean, it's such a, that's the passion, that's the, that's the game, that's the, 
you know, I, from the people that I'm just kind of meeting here, uh, that you just the way they're always talking about all the different things <laughs> and I mean, it's crazy, you know, so, okay, so I, I bet there's a lot, of, that's going to be, that's not happening yet, but that's probably going to be, people are going to really start being curious about that pretty soon, I would think. There's a huge, um, I would say those are more of the people that aren't on the consumer level, the breeding um, programs that I work when the breeders, uh, I have the Caribbean Cannabis Project right now, where I have invested a lot of time into compiling genetics to do genetic trials for the University of Virgin Islands and Oaksterdam in the Caribbean, because it takes a certain amount of years for you to climatize and mutate a genetic so that it reaches its highest potential. You can't just take a seed from one place and put it somewhere else and expect it to you know, reach its highest potential in those new climates. It takes time. You need to allow it to acclimate through the, the processes of Sione. So as we, we do this, and uh, there's been a lot of people now, there's even a company by Jeff Hamilton of Canopy Right where it's teaching people how to um, protect their cultivars through blockchain. But since so many cultivars based genetics came from the West Coast, a lot of us have already had the information while those in the, the central and Eastern United States will be working with cultivars that have a back genetic log of already having been protected. And so they won't be able to have as much amicability in protection if they're working with a genetic that was already um, had plant breeding rights or patents in the past in its cultivars, such as Zittles, Runts, and these name brands that have um, been protected now at this point. Um, mm. they, there's a game going on with the cultivar breeders where we can back breed it uh, two times, three times within a three-year period and negate a patent. And so there is ways around it. And it's just about like holding firm to your proper documentation. I mean, maybe it's happening more out there, but we're not even thinking about that yet, you know, because we're so busy trying to get launched over here in the East Coast. Um, but you guys are like, what's next? We're, you know, we're like, um, but, you know, I was talking to a patent attorney who um, has a background in cultivation. Uh, he's based out of Texas, and he works a lot with research universities um, that it's called um, technology transfer partnerships. So he said it's he said it's not as well known that these research universities have a specific department called the technology transfer departments because they want outside people to come in and partner with their researchers to to commercialize these you know inventions that they're working on or you know these things so um i just think uh, that seems like a great idea it is a great idea one of the hitches that we have working in the university bodies is they're federally funded even if they're land grant funded they're federally funded so most of the university's research can only really be based on hemp. And then we're under a lot of assumption um, of, you know, hemp is a different application. Though we're using some of the cannabinoids in some of the research, um, the cannabinoid spectrum is quite different than with a THC-bearing indica uh, dominant genetic. You know, again, hemp is a sativa, but it's a specific type of sativa that doesn't have a, it has, CBD dominant and not THC Delta 9 dominant compromisation. So when we can't do as much cannabinoid and terpene development or horticultural adjustment 
we can do the emulation, but there's a certain stopping point where hemp research in a federally funded land grant university body cannot go to those new places yet. And even though we're starting to see some of the universities break those ledges using medical application as their catalyst, it's still hearsay and not hands-on. Um, yeah. Hands -on, we're trying to create hands-on horticultural departments where we walk in, I have a sample garden there, you walk in as a student, this is cannabis. It echoes, it echoes hemp, but really hemp is grown differently. Um, it, think of something that's 14,000 plants per acre opposed to something that's 1,400 plants per acre. That's a vast amount of difference in how you grow. Yeah, maybe maybe something like um, along the lines of, of, you know, formulations like not medical, but, you know, it's still far away. But, you know, maybe maybe that kind of research and, and you know, universities are in medical areas. So maybe that's something down the road that somebody can do. But yeah, I just I just think, yeah, it's, it's it seems. Hoping, it's, I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and now um, so just wanted to go back a little bit to the um, extraction processes that people are doing and the innovation happening there. And I remember, I don't know, it seems like you kept hearing the buzzword like cryo cure or cryo, like the, is that the freezing? It seemed like that was like Oregon, like that was kind of happening and maybe it is happening out there, but I never seemed to hear about it again. And what do you think about that? And what is it actually, if you could tell us? Okay, so cryocure is methods of basically freeze drying cannabis, and there's only certain. Um, um, so let's back up for a moment. When you have a cartridge that you're smoking, it's going to be a multitude of different things. You could have an RSO an RSO product, a distillate product, which are both darker in nature, mm. or you have an amber product that's going to be closer to my hair color which is gonna be the rosin extracts and a little bit of the pure THC concepts. When those rosin extracts is just heat, again, no solvents, no nothing, it's just heat. And then pressure is pushing those molecules together and breaking it so it becomes a gooey mess, which can be put into a chilled area to, to make it so that it, it's workable. And they put that into a small cartridges, which is the, the live resin, uh, rosin cartridges, excuse me, not mm. resin, resin is distillate, rosin is the actual trichromes directly from the plant. And, uh, and resin is the, is the, is the leftover from distillate? I wasn't yeah. sure about that. Okay. Okay. And a lot of, um, in, like on corner groceries, you know, marts at the corner and stuff like that, they're pushing a lot of hemp derived products, Delta 8, THC Delta 9, trying to put a D12, THCV, you know, all of these alternative cannabinoids in higher concentrations is actually made through a distillate process where the hemp is broken down into a distillate and then they isolate certain cannabinoids and concentrate them after the testing procedure is done so they negate the law. And even though they're, they're not supposed to be doing that naked, negate the law, they concentrate it back into an edible, a gummy or some other form of you know, smoking product or distillate product where you can put into a vape part. And that's how they are, they're just concentrating the minor cannabinoids into it. But when you're actually working with true THC Delta 9 bearing cannabis plants, then all of those, you wouldn't be able to do that kind of thing because you'd have like 70% THC, which you're seeing in the rosin parts, you're seeing in the, the high end 
pure THC extracts. And so they, some of them use BHO, which is a butane um, solvent. Some of them use a CO2. CO2, again, goes with the cryo-cure concept where they're freeze drying the trichromes off of the top layer and storing it. So some of the larger farms that can create all these carts in all these abundances, they do what they call fresh frozen. So yeah. they'll go into a live farm cut down all the plants and then freeze all the product. All right. So then when the product is frozen, it starts dehydrating a certain amount because we can't extract cannabinoids from plants until it's at least 68% dehydrated. It's more like 72 to be able to be smokable because the plants are three quarters of the way plant or water molecules. So we need to evaporate that out through solvent, through some sort of extraction processes. So when the, the rosin is burst, that's that beautiful amber colored stuff, that is literally just, you could rub the plant with your hands and create Indian charas. That's the same product. You know, you're not going through any sort of chemical change. Nothing is happening. It just smashed true trichromes directly from the plant. So this is pure and a properly cultivated organic matter. The rest of the process is like cryo-cure. They would stuff all of these into a CO2 chamber, cause some agitation, which will break off the trichromes in some way trying to store or dry using a freeze-dry method. They say that the terpenes are still intact, but terpenes are stored in a water molecule that is coated with oil. So if it dehydrates too much, the terpenes will be erased. So if you were to store everything in a cryo-cure chamber or in those types of elements, what the people on the streets in society have seen was the freeze-drying methods are not preserving the terpenes as much as I cure for three weeks underneath the ground. And that same as wine or potatoes, the finer curing is very slow. It's at like a temperature that doesn't create combustion of the molecules prematurely. It preserves certain molecules like terpenes and flavonoids. And that, that goes into more of the wine science where they're using the, you know, the different elements to the tannins and things. They need to preserve it in special ways. And so cryocure didn't really catch on because not only was it overpriced for anybody to participate in freeze-dry methods of, of curing, it was um, it couldn't become the standard because it really only applied to one product, which was the giant extraction of fresh frozen. Mm. And so in general, rosin isn't extracted in those methods because if you were to freeze rosin prior to extracting it, it will change the composite of it. So they do do that, but they're doing it with flash frozen, not freeze drying. So oh. they're just dropping the temperature so that the water in the plant is frozen rather than freeze drying it, which also has a CO2 added to it and some sort of um, air eradication or negative air pressure chamber. And so it just didn't catch on because the price and the applicability within manufacturing companies, it didn't become cost effective for most places and didn't catch on. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. So I can't believe we've been talking for an hour. So I'm going to try to wind this down. Um, I have two last questions. And one is what, what is your favorite, um, like ratio combination of cannabinoids? Are you just a full spectrum or do you have a, a, a yeah, special, what, what's your favorite of, of plant and combination that you love to well, I'm definitely a flower organic girl and the organic flower to me, has such a more depth. When I work into extracts, I like the pure rosins that are regeneratively farmed because you can, you can taste and smell what you taste. So I'm holding a flower and it, it's going to smell and taste the same way all the way through the whole process of it, engaging with it. So I can smell it on the plant and then put it in my pipe and it still smokes and smells the same way as the plant. That's what I enjoy. And I definitely preserve and prefer the high higher THC Delta 9 because I am a traditionally an indica girl where I have a high tolerance and I'm speedy. And as you've seen, I often am, I'm quick to move and it, it slows me down enough to where I'm like, hi, how are you? Yeah. Do you yeah. want to make a Lego car together? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, okay, everything you guys let's change the world. All right, let's go. All right, all right. Yeah. Smoke some more weed. Let's go. Let's, I don't calm down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of me too. So okay. Um, and then I guess the last question is if you um is would you give any advice uh to the New York farmers or who you know cultivators here about how they can survive in you know in this in this market because you know once once uh, uh federal legalization comes and borders open up we're going to get killed by the west coast basically so what would you say what advice would you give our farmers um the farmers of the east coast i implore with you to stop the egos and the need to have to be in control or feel like you're going to be the top dog Sometimes that people don't realize when they come into like this hype mode, again, that cannabis has been illicit for so long, they think that it's some glory hole of expectations and you partner for the wrong reasons. You need to learn collaboration and cooperation. And one of the biggest points that we can save ourselves with is agricultural cooperation. Dole has a brand that has 500,000 farmers underneath one label. These are people all over the world that farm mm. dole products. None of those farmers need to be the one that's in the control. They all work for the greater good, which is one label. So learning agricultural cooperations, learning how to work together and keeping that community is a real core strength of how to get through it because you're gonna be able to support each other through economic times that will change, laws will change, compliance, that will come through. We don't know what the feds will do. And mm -hmm. The only way that we can really succeed and evolve our industry and our growing practices to level up with mainstream is just learn how to do agricultural cooperative taxes, branding, market together, have affiliate affluences, and just like learn to trust each other again and, and make it about us against them is a positive thing. And yeah, yeah. It, it seems from what I can see that there is a great community with the farmers here. There's, you know, a couple different layers here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of legacy people out there, um, but the, the, like the, the legal 
farmers, you know, there, there's a lot of movement um, among the growers, different oh, levels. And, I, and all of them, we have different models here, like um, Farm Cut uh, is a one label. So they have one, all the farmers work under one label. And so there's six different farms that pay taxes as an agricultural cooperative. And all of those farms are saving money because they package and label at the same facility. They're using the same label and branding. They're using the same processes to guarantee the commitment to quality and assurance and you know consistency within their product line. They communicate together. They are able to buy bulk amendments, uh, bulk fertilizers, bulk everything. Oh, and yeah. passing out between seven or eight different farmers that are working together that collective cooperative agricultural model is a taxation model. It's a business model that works extremely well because you see all these different places that have strawberries or pineapple farms. Like I was saying, Dole, we are an agricultural crop. You have to work together and, and shrink all of the needs values. You can't have 17 you know, different manufacturing companies in a seven block radius. It doesn't work. You can have all of those companies white labeling from two manufacturing companies and having those, you know, just work together. Those are the only way because the bigger money is so big. It's as big as every single one of the operators all together. And then some, these are Bayer pharmaceuticals. These are people that if all of us even work together, all of us, we probably cannot still compete with them. So create your agricultural cooperative and just have community collaboration as much as possible in cannabis. Oh, that's that's great. Pass the pipe. Remember to pass the pipe. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.